I'm reminded um, about one reason why I like Calvary so much, and that's because we're a family. And I can open my mouth and say things and trust that everyone knows what I don't mean. (laughs) Because we are family. And it does my heart good to know that we are not so formal and stiff that we can't laugh at our own mistakes. So if I make some mistakes, please laugh with me. I know you won't be laughing at me. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 chapter Samuel 9. I mean first, yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 9. Here we go. It's starting early. <laughs> Thank you. We want to talk about Samuel. Israel wanted a king. I'd like to address the Christians here this morning. Um, and like I said last week, the danger of speaking about characters of the Old Testament and speaking to the Christians is that someone might be in the room and they don't know the Lord and they might apply, misapply what we're talking about to them. Uh, a person can't begin to um, work on their life without Christ. The first step in a person's life that doesn't know the Lord is to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that person receives eternal life. That's a wonderful thing. They enter into a personal relationship with the living God. And that begins a lifelong walk with the Lord in which the Lord is teaching us things. He's bringing us into conformity with the character of Christ at the same time, maintaining our personality intact. We don't become clones. We don't become zombies. We become more like the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an exciting walk. It's exciting to see the Lord reveal himself in everyday occurrences that other people might consider, quote, circumstance or coincidence. There's no such thing as coincidence. So we're going to look at a man this morning, Saul, and we're going to apply some lessons to our Christian life from his life. Saul is a man just like we are, fraught with the same frailties, the same failures, the same sins, perhaps besetting sins. Um, He has victories in his life as well. He lives a life of ups and downs, and we're going to look at them. And we're going to look at the overall tenor of his life and see how it might apply to us. Israel wanted a king, so God had a man chosen. Let's see how that comes about in 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. And that's the topic of our message this morning, Saul. There was, a, there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of, any of the people. So he was handsome and he was tall. Think of the tallest person you know, and that's where his shoulders were. So he was head and shoulders above the rest. Um, born leader by the visual anyway. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Please take one of the servants with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. Seemed like an ordinary everyday event. Perhaps not every day, but it's an ordinary event. Animals are lost. Let's go look for them. And so he charges his son Saul, Go look for the donkeys. You wouldn't think anything special of that, would you? But God had something in mind. God had a plan. God had a purpose. And God can even use lost donkeys to accomplish his purposes. 
Saul's going to have what we call a divine appointment because God's got a plan for Saul. Saul doesn't know it at this time. Oftentimes in our lives, we get up and something happens, something out of the ordinary. And it's pretty dangerous trying to look ahead to wonder if this is a divine appointment or that's a divine appointment because it gets us in all kinds of wacky ideas. But hindsight's twenty twenty. Sometimes we walk down the road, um, and Santa was reminding me of that with Nathan um, just yesterday. Uh, he was in a tennis tournament. The tennis tournament uh, didn't come about for Nathan, so I asked, well, do we get our money back? And she was sort of nervous about calling the coach up, asking, what, what about our money back? And so she calls, and um, she asks about other classes after the ch- they change information. He's going to send the check to us. Do you have other classes? And they said, why are you, he said, why are you interested in, in it for your son? And she said, well, no, I was thinking maybe Nathan can help out in some of the classes. Oh, really? Well, that's, that's interesting. Tell me a little bit about Nathan. Well, he's homeschooled. Oh, really? So was I. Before it was legal to be homeschooled. <laughs> well, put Nathan on. And so Nathan spoke with him, and now Nathan has a pretty good paying job for his age at the tennis club coaching tennis. And this guy's quite good, and he gets to hit. They call it hit, you know, play tennis. We call it play tennis. They call it hit with the coach, and so he's, he's getting better. Little did we know when Santa made that call that God had something behind it in mind. And so looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty. You wouldn't have guessed it in foresight. And neither did Saul when he's out looking for the donkeys. So he looks and he looks and he looks. And he goes all over the countryside and he doesn't find his donkeys. So, he says in verse 5, When they had come to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servants, who, servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. Makes sense. A little bit of wisdom there. And he said to him, Look now, there is, a, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there, and perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Okay, so now we see God's hand arranging things. He's going to meet Samuel, the prophet. And everything that Samuel says comes true, because he was a prophet. And so these lost donkeys turns into a divine appointment between Saul and Samuel. And we read about further on in verse 15, the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people, Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because of their cry, my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Samuel answered and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But but as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on your father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me like this? Or why do you speak like this to me? Okay, so now we can see it's a divine appointment. God had spoken to Samuel the day before and he was going to send him a man that he was going to anoint king. 
I like this verse 19. Tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't be anxious about them. They are found. So that tells me Saul, when the thought of going to the seer's house came up, more questions arised in his mind than the donkeys. Perhaps he'd have courage to ask, perhaps not. But Samuel knew because God showed him. And I wonder about us. Do our thoughts go to a higher level when it comes to the things of God? If you were, to, if you were able to ask God a question and receive a direct answer from God, what would your question be? Would it be about donkeys? I don't think so. But would it be about possessions? Would it be about job choice? Would it be about a, a soulmate? <laughs> what questions would you ask? You see, because Saul was standing before a prophet, and God's plan for Saul was that he be king, that he reign over Israel. And you know, I was thinking about that. You and I were born to reign. Did you know that? That's what God's plan for us is, is that we reign. We are born for something higher than the mundane things that, we're, we, that occupy us these days. We were born to reign. It's been said, this is training time for reigning time. One day we will reign. And that's what we were born for. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And our thoughts should arrive to a higher level. And when they're not, that's when our spiritual temperature is low. And I think Sam or Saul had some thoughts about what um, he would ask Samuel. We notice some things about Samuel as we go along. We notice, one, he had questions, and I think the questions had more to do than the donkey. We notice in verse 21 that he was humble. Now, aren't I from the smallest of the tribes of Israel in my house? So small. In his own eyes, he was small, insignificant, and he wondered, why should the prophet of God speak to him thus? It's an amazing thing to me that God would ever be interested in me. Who am I? A great man on the earth? No. From a pronounced family, noble family? No. I could say like Paul, the chief of sinners. Why would God be interested in me? Why would he be interested in you? He is. He is. And he was interested in Saul. And so we see some of these qualities in Saul that at the outset, they're admirable qualities and we want to look at them. And I think we'd be wise to mirror them. First Samuel 10, verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? He was chosen of God. If you know the Lord this morning, you were chosen of God. And you were chosen of God for a reason and for a purpose. And God does have a plan for your life. And it's a plan for good, not bad. It's a plan of progressive spiritual growth of walking ever closer to the Lord, of experiencing Him in a more real way as life goes on. Saul was obedient at the outset. 1 Samuel 10, 4. Samuel gives him some signs, some things that will happen just to confirm in Saul's heart and in his mind that God had indeed chosen him. 
And so he goes on to say, let's, um, verse 3, let's start in verse 3. Then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you. One carrying three, uh, three young goats and another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and will give you two loaves of bread which you shall receive from their hands. After that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is and it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a, with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will, be, you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And so he would take the bread from these men which showed he was obeying. He, he was obedient at the, at the beginning. Verse 7, And it will be when these signs come to you that you will do as the occasion demands for God is with you. So God was with him. God chose him. He was obedient. He was given a new heart. Verse 9, So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God had given, given him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. So God gave him a new heart. When a person accepts the Lord Jesus Christ, he's given a new heart. And it's a heart that longs to be obedient. A heart that longs for God's presence. He had a very real sense of his own inadequacy. We see verse 22 when, when Samuel goes to announce who the king was and they, um, they narrowed it out by family and then narrowed it down to Saul and they, they couldn't find him. Where was he? Therefore, verse 22, they inquired of the Lord further. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, there he is, hidden among the equipment. So he was hiding. To me, that's because of a real sense of his own inadequacy. And that's a very healthy thing before the Lord. A sense of one's own inadequacy. Because then God gets the glory. He was given valiant men to a company whose heart had been touched as well. And so men whom God had touched, they would, they would walk with him and they would accompany him. Would you say he was off to a good start? I would say he was off to a good start. Yeah. Okay, so he's now anointed king and he goes back home and he has what I like to consider the first crisis of his administration coming up. You know, oftentimes that's a test um, of a true leader. The first crisis of his administration. And it either confirms or casts doubt in the eyes of the people about him being a good leader. This is God's chosen man. First crisis of Saul's administration. What were the hallmarks of it? Well, let's read a little bit about the story. In chapter 11, Then Naash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us. And we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered on this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. So he said, yeah, I'll make a peace treaty with you, but I want to gouge out all your right eyes. Every one of your eyes, your right eyes, I want to gouge out. 
That didn't sound too promising. Then the elders of Jebath said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to um, Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. So maybe they heard that there was a king anointed and they sent out messengers. So this is a crisis. There's an enemy king that, uh, that was threatening Jabesh Gilead. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And so here's a hallmark of a person that is walking with God. He's concerned about others. He sees the people weeping and he's wondering, what's the matter? And we're going to see that changes later on in his life. He becomes self-centered. But he's others directed here. In verse 5, what troubles the people? And they told him the words of the man of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he was controlled by the Spirit of God, another hallmark of the man walking with God, controlled by the Spirit of God. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces. So he had disregard for his own personal possessions. He was so concerned with others, he cut his oxen in pieces. And he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And so he aligned himself with the prophet, priest of God, Samuel. So he wasn't a lone ranger. He didn't go out without godly counsel. I like that. Not a lone ranger. He had a man of God at his side. And fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And so, we find that God was acting on his behalf. The fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out. He united the people. God used him to unite the people. And so they were united, not divided. Another hallmark of a man following after God. And so, he numbered them in Bezek. And the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. Wow, what encouragement. 300,000 plus 30,000 of Judah. I'd be encouraged. He was not alone. God was working on his behalf. Then they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. And so he went out to help others. Through caution to the wind, he gathered up the people and they went out to, to rescue those of Jabesh Gilead. And what was the end result? In verse 11, the enemies were scattered. Enemies, the enemy was scattered. And, you know, when he was anointed king, there were some people that, what can he do for us? And they went their way. Whereas other valiant men went to be with Saul. And so here's an opportunity for people to speak up. And they did. Who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that they may be put to death. So all the people went to go. Um, then Samuel said to the people, oh, excuse me. Oh, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. So he shows mercy and wisdom. Nobody's going to be put to death today. 
See, so he knew how to turn the hearts of the people through mercy and wisdom, compassion. And it says in verse 15, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Okay, so here's victory. First crisis of his administration, and there was victory. And God was glorified. God worked among them. God delivered the people of Jabesh Gilead through Saul. Okay, so, off to a good start. Off to a great start. Is it always going to be like that? I think of my Christian life and I think of the Christian lives of others and I remember something that was told to me young, while well, young in, in Christ. It's been said that many Christians start out their Christian lives in a blaze of glory only to peter out and crash and burn. You know, when somebody truly comes to know the Lord, it's wonderful. God stokes a fire in their heart and they want to serve the Lord with all that they have. And they have great hopes and great ambitions to serve the Lord in many different ways depending on the person, whether it's missionary, whether it's serving the Lord in the local church, whether it's evangelistic outreach on campus. And there's a constant desire to Please the Lord to get to know Him better. And that's healthy, and that's good, and that's right, and that's natural and normal for a person who has just come to know the Lord. But how far does it go? How long does it go? How high do they fly before the going gets tough? And then we find out what we're really made of. And I think that's what happened to Saul. And we're going to think about that this morning. He had his ups and downs, but most of it after this was down. How would you describe your Christian life right now? Are you as hot as you once were? Is the spiritual temperature burning low? Can it be fanned into an open flame once again? I think that's what the Lord wants. Two years into his reign, Saul had hand-chosen 2,000 men to be with him. Sent everybody else home. Jonathan got 1,000. So there were 3,000 men with Saul and his son, Jonathan. And Jonathan, well, we could do a character study on Jonathan, man of faith. He attacks the Philistine garrison. And uh, they're not too happy about it. So they mount up 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and they gather. And the men of Israel are starting to get afraid. They either hid in the caves, in the holes, wherever they could, or they fled across the Jordan to avoid conflict, or they followed Saul trembling with fear. Things have changed in two years, haven't they? What's more... Um, we read in verse 8 let's see verse excuse me uh, we're in uh, Saul, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13 Samuel had arranged to come meet with Saul at an appointed time, and Samuel was not there. He was late. 
So we had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen gathering against Israel. The men were fearful. They were hiding. They were flee, fleeing or they followed trembling. And now Samuel wasn't there at his side. He was late. And what's more, if we read in verse 15 of the same chapter, that there are only about 600 men left out of the 3,000. So a lot of them had fled. Now he's down to 600. People were fearful. And Samuel's not there. And perhaps Samuel was a strength to him. So we have to ask what was going on. What was Saul going to do? Why was this happening to him? Why did Samuel delay? Those are natural questions. And when we meet up with difficulties, when we meet up with unusual circumstances, oftentimes we ask these same questions. Why is this happening to me? Why didn't this happen? Why didn't that happen? What's God doing? Think about that. Why did Samuel delay? Did Saul have a just accusation? Well, wow, he said he was here. He said he'd be here in seven days. He's not here. Because Saul did something he shouldn't have done. But I want us to think about that. Why? What was happening to him? And um, I think of the question, was this a test? Does God test us? We find that time and time again in the scriptures. God testing men, testing women. Why does he test us? Does he need to know what's in our heart? He doesn't need to know. He already knows. He already knows how we will respond in every given situation. But you know, there's somebody that doesn't know. You know who that is? We don't know. We don't know until we go through the situation. You know, people oftentimes ask, what would you do in this given situation? And you know what first thing comes to my mind? I don't know what I would do. I just know what I would like to have done after going through that. I, and we always like to put ourselves in the place of the hero or the you know, victory, right? Yeah, I would like to have done this. I would like to have said that. But you don't really know until you go through it. The human heart says in Scripture that it's deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And to me, that means my own heart can deceive myself. <laughs> I can deceive myself. That's why it's so good and healthy to have men of God around me that can help me to see straight. Women, to have other women that love and know God that can help you see straight. It's healthy. I think of an illustration. Um, you know, the scripture talks about the human heart. It's not talking about the pump in the center of our chest. When I think of the human body, I think of the lungs. And I was doing a little bit of reading on, on the lungs. And um, I don't know if you knew this, but when you think of all the airways in our lungs, if you were to take them out and put them end to end, you know how long that would be? The different airways that go through our lungs? Over 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles of airways in our lungs. Avioli, that's at the end of those airways, there's these sacs, and that's where the transference of oxygen into our blood and carbon dioxide out of our blood happens. There's between 300 and 500 million of those. It's a lot of little nooks and crannies. If you were to take our lungs and somehow expose all the surface area that's exposed to the oxygen through all those airways and alveoli, alveoli, it would measure the area of one side of a tennis court. All inside your lungs. 
amazing, isn't it? Now, can you imagine there be some little bacteria in one nook, little nook and cranny in your lungs and you've got to find it? It'd be pretty hard to do, wouldn't it? Not for God. God knows exactly where it is. It's amazing thing about the lungs, too, is they have this self-cleaning um, process that God built into them where they bring up, you know, your, your lungs will bring up the junk. And when somebody coughs, that's what he's doing. He's getting rid of the junk in their lungs. It's very ingenious. The Lord's wonderful. You see, when God puts us in tests, through tests, it's not the, it's for God to discover what's in our heart. It's for him to reveal through those circumstances and how we respond to those circumstances to us what's in our heart. And that's what the Christian life so oftentimes happens in the Christian life is God allows us to go through different circumstances. Perhaps it's losing a job. Perhaps it's being fraught with a sickness that can't be explained. Perhaps it's difficulty with raising your children and they go astray. And they don't love the Lord, perhaps. Perhaps it's in school and a, you know, um, a difficult instructor. Perhaps it's a row that's hard to hoe. <laughs> and he puts us, he lets us go through those circumstances to show us how we'll respond. And in doing that, he shows us what's in our heart. And too often times we respond, uh, or let's, let's put it this way, we reveal to ourselves, or God reveals to us, the filth that's in our heart. See, when Christ died on the cross to save us for our sins, we're cleansed in the eyes of God, positionally. But practically, I still have a lot of filthy stuff in my life. And God wants to show that to me so that I come to look at it like he looks at it. So I come to see that the destructiveness of those sins like he sees them. And so that I could bring them before him and say, Lord, I see how ugly, I see how dirty, I see how filthy that is. Please root it out of my life. That's my desire. Then we're in agreement with God. Then we're in accord with God. That's what real confession is, is when I agree with God about what he sees in my life. And he does the marvelous thing. He step by step, day by day, transforms us more into the image of Christ. And so I believe that's what the process is of testing us to show us what's in our heart. And I think that's what he's doing here. He knew Saul was going to overstep the bound. But he created the circumstances to reveal that. Had Samuel arrived on time, he wouldn't have overstepped the bound. How did he overstep the bound? He infringed upon the priesthood. He offered up a burnt offering, which he wasn't supposed to do, and he knew he shouldn't have done that. He knew it was wrong. And had Samuel arrived there on time, he wouldn't have done that. But it was still in his heart to do it. Down in a nook and a cranny, God knew this sin is there, and I want to bring it to light. And that's what God did. Brought it to light. In First Chronicle 28.9, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. So God knows what's in our heart. He wants to bring it to light so that we can see it for how he sees it and that we can forsake it. But the question is, when he brings it to light and we see What's going to be our response? Saul's response was one of excuses. Excuses. 
And God doesn't accept excuses. He was fearful. The people were scattering from him. And now we're going to see the, the ugliness of his sin. He became self-reliant. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring a, uh, bring a burnt offering and peace offering here uh, to me. And he offered the burnt offering. So he said, well, I'll do it then. Sam is not here. I'll do the offering. He became self-reliant. And he infringed upon the priesthood. He should have never done that. And he knew it was wrong. If you read the passage, when Sam came up, what did you do? Well, I did. I did I, he knew he was wrong. He started offering up excuses. You don't do that when you're right. He justified his sin in verse 11. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines were gathered together at Migmash, then I said, the Philistines um, will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. So he justified his sin. He had all these reasons. Boom, 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 boom. And it sounded justifiable to him, but it was wrong and he knew it. He was concerned with self-preservation. A Christian never has to be concerned with self-preservation. You know why? Because God's concerned with preserving him. And that's, that's with God. We, we get into all kinds of trouble when we worry about self-preservation. He's put a spiritual spin on his sin. He made it sound spiritual, didn't he? We oftentimes do that. We justify what we do. We put a spiritual spin on it. But it doesn't wash. It's not right. He went by feelings. He felt compelled. Boy, how many dangerous places have Christians got themselves into when they go by feelings rather than by the word of God? He was flat out disobedient. Verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. So he was disobedient. Before he was others directed, but now we see a turn. He's self-directed. He's worried about himself. We go wrong when we put self before others. And what was the result? And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for Himself a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so this is the beginning of the descent for Saul. He started out in a blaze of glory and now he's starting to descend. And it's not going to be a direct descent. We're going to see a little rises, falls, rises, falls, but he's on the downward path. Notice God didn't say that the kingdom would end right away. God gives opportunity for repentance. But he says the kingdom shall not be his forever, which means it wouldn't be left for his descendants. And it, it didn't get taken from him right away. We'll find there, there was a lot of time between now and the end. Saul had some ups, but mostly downs. What were some of them? He made a rash vow that nearly caused him to kill his son. That doesn't sound like a man walking with God to me. He stopped the people from continuing to sin by eating the, uh, the spoil with blood. And so there's an up in his life. You know, he made a rash vow. He said, okay, cursed is the man that eats anything before I take vengeance on my enemies. Well, he's not others directed. He's, his, he's himself directed. Jonathan, you know, he was a wonderful man of faith. He's just off 
you know, raising Cain with the Philistines, and he didn't know anything about that curse. And he comes through the forest, and he sees some honey, eats some honey. And then men told him, oh, your father put anybody in a curse if they eat anything before he takes vengeance on his enemies. And his, his son saw the foolishness of that. And when God revealed that it was Jonathan that ate, Saul was ready to put him to death, and the men of Israel had to save him. How low can you get where you're willing to put your son to death due to a rash vow that you yourself make? I admire people that put God before their children. I think that's right. But not as a result of a rash vow that we make out of fellowship with God. Okay, he built an altar to the Lord. First time he ever did that, he built an altar to the Lord. Seemed like an up in his life. The Lord sent him on a mission to destroy Amalek. And Saul spared the king and the best of the spoils. So, in complete obedience. God sent Saul to destroy Amalek. God had a purpose. And God has purposes in which he likes to use us as instruments of his. And when we walk in obedience, his purposes are accomplished. When we disobey, his purposes aren't. It's like taking a painting that God's painting and just splashing ink all over it. It's not good. It says he sent up a monument to himself. Not to God, but to himself. Saul did. He wanted Samuel to honor him in front of the people. Samuel went to turn away, and he grabbed Saul or Samuel and ripped his robe. He said, I'll come back with me and honor me before the people. Interested in self. Self-directed. And so, he was on the downward spiral. And it's at that time that God uh, sent Samuel to anoint David, a man after his own heart. And we'll hear more about him later, perhaps next week. And then Samuel dies. And an all-time low, I mean, once in his life, he cast all the mediums, all the spiritists out of Israel. All-time low, he seeks... um, the Lord, and the Lord doesn't answer him, so he goes to a medium. Seeks out a medium, the witch of Endor. You remember the story. So, his life went down after that. To the end that he committed suicide. And his son died with him. And that's a valuable lesson for us when we're not walking with the Lord. And we're heading for destruction that we usually don't go alone. We usually take... Somebody with us somehow. Nothing else. A bad example to our children. It's a fearful thought. So, what was happening to to Saul here? What's the lesson for us today? And I'd like to close with an illustration that I think shows that point. What God's doing, what he wants to do, and how we can cooperate with him. I can remember um, talking with my uncle. He was an aerospace engineer. And he worked for Hughes, sending up spacecraft, and it was his responsibility to get him in orbit at a certain height. And I could have never understood what he was talking about, understood what he was talking about, until I took calculus and physics. So I'd like to give you a little lesson. There's people that know more about that in this room than I do, so I'm going to try to simplify it. Calculus has to do with rates of change, okay? Things that change with time. Um, gravity, for instance. Um, well, I'll start with gravity. Things fall at an acceleration, an accelerated rate. 
which means if you're going 10 miles an hour after, 10, after an hour, how far will you have gone? 10 miles. But if you're accelerating, it's not so easy. Because you accelerate not at miles per hour, but let's say feet per second per second. So that's an extra complication. Just to explain it a little bit, if you drop an object, the rate of acceleration of an object falling because of the gravitational pull of the Earth is 32 feet per second per second. Now, it's not, it's not uh, truncated like that. It actually, you know, there's in-between parts, but it, for our mind to get a hold of it, the first second, it will have fallen 32 feet. The second second, it will have fallen how many? Per second per second, 64 feet. So you add another 32 feet. The third second, it will be falling at 96 feet per second. So you see it's accelerating. Okay? That's a rate of change. It's not, a, it's not maintaining the same velocity. There's a rate of change. And so my uncle was talking about putting a spacecraft into a certain orbit. And you deal with rates of change there. What's the rate of change? Well, you get an engine, a jet engine, and it has so much thrust. Okay? So you have to have an engine that has enough thrust to lift the, the payload, the weight of that rocket. But it's a complicated equation that calculus simplifies because as you burn fuel in that rocket, what happens to the weight of that rocket? It gets less. So it gets lighter as you go up. So you'll need less fuel as you decrease the weight. So what I'm trying to say is there's rates of change. And that got, thinking me, got me thinking about rockets. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with, you know, the Word of God, with spiritual things? Well, maybe, maybe you'll see. You know, there's a movie about a guy that developed rockets. It was very interesting. Um, talk about stages. Single stage to orbit, or STO, vehicles, research, uh, reaches orbits from the surface of a body without jettisoning hardware. Expending only propellants and fluids. The term usually but not exclusively refers to use of, uh, reusable vehicles. No Earth-launched ST or SSTO vehicles have ever um, been constructed. Current orbital, and it goes on and on and on. And there's a couple of them that they mentioned. However, none of them has come close to achieving orbit. So what's that saying is that with today's technology, we don't have a rocket fuel that's powerful enough to take a big enough rocket with all that fuel to reach or to, to go outside, to, to reach orbit, to get outside of the gravitational pull. So they have a marvelous way of doing that. Anybody know what it is? It's called stages. Two-stage rocket, three-stage rocket, four-stage rocket. They even have a five-stage rocket. And that's where, um, you know, you've seen the shuttle take off? Seen those piggyback rockets? Well, those are stages. They take it up to a certain altitude, and then what happens to those rocket engines? They're jettisoned, right? And as they jettison, what happens to all the weight of those, those big units? It's no longer there. What have to have, has to happen next? You have to have the ignition of the, the secondary rockets in the shuttle to keep going. Of course, now you have you know, a lot less weight, and that takes it up to where it can get into orbit. Okay, sometimes it takes more stages than that. That's a semi-reusable, that's a reusable Stage. It's sort of like the in-between. So they found that they don't have a single-stage rocket that'll get in orbit. You've got to use multiple stages. And the only way it's going to work is if a stage is jettisoned, and then the fuel's ignited, and it goes until that stage is spent, and then it's jettisoned, 
and the next stage takes over until they're at the desired altitude. It's interesting because I was able to understand that. But think of that about your Christian life. Think about that. No rocket will ever reach orbit that doesn't first jettison a stage and two, more fuel is ignited. As we go in our Christian life, as God reveals to us through circumstances, through trials, through tests, what's in our heart, he shows us stuff that we need to jettison. We need to reject. It's sin. We need to have victory over it. And if we don't, we're not going to reach orbit. We're not going to reach his desired destination for our lives. And so God's in the business of showing us our sin, revealing to us through circumstances what needs to be rooted out of our lives. We need to see it. Because he won't help us until we do. Until we cry out for help. Lord, take that from me. I recognize it. And then he ignites a fresh batch of fuel through the power of his Holy Spirit. And we want to grow even more. Because we want to arrive at new heights. We want to have a deeper walk, walk with God. And that's what he's made us for. And so I have to ask, what are the stages that we've refused to jettison in our lives? What's holding us back? If you don't know the Lord, there's something holding you back. And you have to honestly ask yourself, what is holding me back from accepting the Lord Jesus Christ, from experiencing a personal walk with the one that created you? Because I'm telling you, there's heights up there he wants to take you to that the view is fantastic. And I oftentimes in my life, there have been stages that I have refused to jettison. And it's dead weight. And it's dragging me down. And God wants me to jettison it. So whatever you're going through, whatever difficult you find yourself in, seek to know what the Lord's showing you through it. What do you want you to forsake? What attitudes he wants you to change? And you'll be flying to new heights. You'll be walking with God. And you'll be getting closer and closer to true fellowship with him. I'd like to close by reading a verse, Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay, also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess we're not so unlike Saul. Lord, we think of how you called him, how you gave him a new heart, how you set up all the players on the board to his benefit. Lord, how he had a good start and how you gave him victory as he kept his eyes on you. Lord, and we like to think of that good part, but so oftentimes we confess in our lives we suffer the downward spiral because perhaps we're unwilling to jettison what you want us to jettison in our lives unwilling to see things as you see them unwilling to let things be brought to the surface so we just look the other way Lord we know we were meant to fly high we know that you called us for a sweet 
special relationship with yourself walk in fellowship with you and we know that Lord there's heights that you want to take us to that we haven't even dreamed of we just pray this morning that you would show us what holds us back Lord if there be anything that holds us back that we would see it clearly and open the hand the grasping hand and jettison that that you might ignite within us by your spirit a new new fuel that you'd fan perhaps that flickering flame into an open and blazing fire hot for you we pray ask it in jesus name amen